Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. I've always had this idea that if a child went missing in my small town, especially one of my own kids, that I'd go to every door of every home that holds a man I don't quite trust. And there are five of them. Five men in my town of 800 or so people that I don't like the cut of. It's a strange little secret I hold. There's no way I tell anybody about it. The fact that I think I know where to go quickly in succession. If anyone were to go missing on the way home from school or the pool or the ice rink or the store, I won't share it with anyone because I don't want to get back to these men. I don't want them to know that I see them. I don't want to make them real. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Sherry's Ghost House. That's what they called it. Sherry's Ghost House. And whether the little girl haunted it or not, the idea that her spirit could be tortured within was enough for her elderly parents to buy the place in 2020 and demolish it. Binghamton, New York, a quaint city near the Pennsylvania border, features rolling hills, winding rivers, and a sense of being a safe place to live, though, like anywhere else, it really isn't. And back in the mid-80s, one little girl doing her paper route alone found this out the hard way. March 26th, 1984, 3.30 p.m. 12-year-old Sherry Lindsay had always had her mother with her when delivering newspapers. Sherry's father, David, was a cop, and her mother, Jean, a homemaker. So there was always time for mom to chaperone Sherry on her route. Always, except for this cursed day, a Monday. Mother Jean is busy with dinner and the needs of Sherry's other siblings. She decides against her better judgment, Jean does, to let Sherry go out on her own, on her paper route, and this is an exciting step for the seventh grader. And she hurries out the door with her big yellow canvas bag of newspapers slung over her shoulder before her mother changes her mind. Mother Jean barely gets a chance to say goodbye. She'll regret the decision to let Sherry go, alone, for the rest of her life. Sherry is growing up as she strides down the sidewalk. The air has a chill to it. There is one more snowstorm to come before spring arrives. She won't live to see it. When the phone rings at 4.30 p.m. and Sherry's boyfriend asks to speak with her, Mother Jean realizes that her daughter is late. She hasn't missed this call once. It's new. She's 12 years old. She has a boyfriend. These calls have been happening for maybe months now. 
We're talking about 90 calls in a row. And she hasn't missed him. Not once. Maybe she got slowed down without the extra help. Perhaps she ran into friends and got Gavin. But neither prospect rings true to Jean. Her daughter Sherry is a highly responsible young woman. That's why they'd allowed the boyfriend and for Sherry to get her ears pierced recently. There was nothing about Sherry's character that had ever worried her parents. She always did everything just as it should be done. So Jean goes looking for Sherry, and there's something about the hooded homes, the naked shivering trees along the paper route, that soon turns Mother Jean around to go back home and call Father Dave. Something has happened to their daughter, Sherry. Jean knows this immediately. And when Officer David Lindsay gets the call about his daughter not yet returned by 5 p.m., he hops in a squad car and starts searching. He knows it's too early, but he also knows his daughter. He searches on his own until darkness begins to fall. The hearts of those who know Sherry best those hearts sink with the weight as the darkness falls. The knowledge that something is very wrong here lays heavy on the minds of those who know Sherry best. There's an advantage in having the father as a cop. There is no wait to see if the girl is at a friend's house or got distracted by a boy and ran off once he sounds the alarm around 8 p.m. David Lindsay forces the issue. He knows his daughter. No, she would never worry him or her mother unnecessarily. No, she would have taken the responsibility of doing her paper route alone. This is an emergency. And he has every copy he knows. On the lookout. But when the night grows old and the streets fail to give his little girl back, the fear turns to desperation. And Sherry's father, David, this cop, he relentlessly drives his squad car through the night, straining through tears to make sense of the shadows as his fellow officers bellow the name Sherry across the surrounding neighborhoods, parks, and wooded areas, scaring the children of Binghamton who hear their parents' whispers of the word kidnapped. A boogeyman has stolen her away. The kids at school are convinced of this the next day, and there's something about children. They feel it on a deep level when something bad has happened, especially to one of their own. With kids, we all know this, not many bad things happen. Until they do, and they become everything. The worst thing that can happen as a small person, a little child, is to be stolen away. It's a hard thing to come to terms with. We all think that we're going to be just fine and that we arrive here and we're cuddled and we're coddled, hopefully. We're fed, we're bathed, we're celebrated. And then one day, you're taken, someone else is taken. A kid gets hit by a car, a friend of yours gets sick, and you realize, oh shit, this thing's not fair. The kids develop a kind of, well, a herd instinct. Uh, I know in my experience when a kid got hit by a car and died outside of our school that suddenly no one wanted to cross the street. And we would all kind of cross together. In this situation, with Sherry stolen or just disappeared, 
the herd instinct is to not play on the playgrounds after school. So these playgrounds, they're empty, usually bustling, right? Kids are grouping up and going straight home. Many are surprised to be picked up by their parents along the way. Cherry's parents, Dave and Gene, are relentless. Dave, the cop, he's a good man, a strong, stoic type. He checks in on his genie often, and each time her wails and tears send him back out searching with refreshed vigor. At about the 24-hour mark, Dave is ready to collapse. His department takes over. Enough time has passed for a real investigation. They begin by questioning everyone along Sherry's paper route, with special attention to two houses, where Mother Jean remembers her daughter having trepidation. There's the man who smells like cigars and the man who looks at her funny. Officer David Lindsay has been wanting to bang down every door all night to try to find his daughter inside, but you can't very well do that without being arrested yourself. He's a good cop. His fellow officers now do the work for him after the 24 hours, and they quickly dismiss Cigar Smoke Man before heading over to the fella who was looking at Sherry Funny. This is 35-year-old James Wales, a husband and stepfather who lives seven blocks from the Lindsay home. Wales is a heavy-set man with a mustache and a head of messy brown hair. He's a fidgety character, sweaty. Eye contact seems to be an issue. The investigators have a sick feeling about him. And back in 1984, in a place like Binghamton, New York, a bad feeling went a long way. The fucking guy looks like a kidnapper acts like one. He'd seemed guarded and worried and nervous as all hell while being spoken to. Not for the missing girl, of course. Just for himself. What are you guys doing here? Oh, Why all the questions? Oh, a girl went missing? He doesn't say that's too bad. He says, whoa, you think that I took her? The conversation between this husky little fucking beaver looking piece of shit greasy little knucklehead and the detectives makes them want to stay. But when they finally leave the residence, they speak to one another, the detectives, and they're like, hey, should we go back there right now, beat the shit out of him until we knock the truth out of him? Their suspicions are so strong that when they get back to the station and begin sharing them, the captain orders that James Wales be brought in for questioning. Meanwhile, Sherry's mother fusses around her daughter's room. She makes the bed, folds her clothes, does mom stuff. She doesn't know what to do. She's losing it. She looks for any clue as to where Sherry might be, looking through journals, looking for diaries. But the answer isn't there. It isn't in this room, which Jean Lindsay will keep just this way, just the way it was when Sherry, her daughter, disappeared. She'll keep it that way until this very day, washing and folding her daughter's clothes twice a year for decades, 40 years now. The room is a tomb a time capsule, and a place where Jean will go so often to feel close to her lost little girl. They find her once they bring that greasy little gopher, James Wales, in. Detectives ask his wife if they can have a look around the house, and she allows it. While Wales is being questioned at the precinct, giving up nothing but the smell of body odor as the interrogation heats up, His stepson is spoken to, 
a boy around the same age as Sherry, and he tells a story they've not yet heard. The boy claims that on the previous afternoon, Sherry Lindsay had come to the door and spoken to his stepfather about collecting money for the papers. The boy had overheard some of the conversation from upstairs, then he'd heard a commotion and a short scream. Knowing his stepfather's temper, he'd been careful not to be seen as he looked over the railing. What he shares next sends the detectives scrambling. The boy claims he saw Sherry's booted feet up in the air as if she were being carried over shoulder through the cellar door in the basement. Officers soon find a heap of blankets haphazardly covered by some wood paneling. A quick search of the suspicious pile soon reveals the broken face of young Sherry Lindsay. When the shocking news is radioed back to the precinct, interrogators bitterly share it with James Wales. The room is quiet for a few moments. Wales can only stare at the detectives, seemingly dumbfounded. They've known this man had something to hide. His attempts to come off as harmless and afraid have been transparent. This is a beast before them. They now see it flicker in the eyes, feel it as he stretches out his full girth. Strong, sloping shoulders, big barrel chest, and bulging gut. The greasiness of his hair, the stickiness of his stubble, all begin to shine through as menace. He licks his lips, and that mustache bristles audibly in the now deathly silent room. Wales then shares his recollection of events. He tells of Sherry coming to the door and collecting money. He didn't want to give her the money, by the way. This was the guy who had given her weird stares, but he's also the guy that hadn't given them money for months. And he stood out in the mind of her mother, Jean, as one of the fucking weirdos on the route for a few reasons. He likely tells her to come in and I'll get it for you. And originally he claimed to have paid the girl at this point, and she got in a merry way, but now that her body has been found in his fucking basement, he tells the truth. James Wales had noticed the mother wasn't present, and before he knows himself what the plan is, he grabbed the girl, shut the door, and carried her screaming to the cellar. They allegedly fell down the stairs together in the struggle. I think he says this as a way initially to kind of try to get himself out of her injuries in the end, but then realizes that nothing can account for the way it ends up. Wales desperately tries to quiet her, slapping a hand over her mouth. The kids are home. The wife is not home. The kids aren't his. They're stepkids. He has dinner in the oven, uh, just as Sherry's mother does. Wales clamps that fat, hairy hand over her mouth, then grabs what he calls a stick. Later, it's found to have been a table leg and begins beating young Sherry over the head with it. When she's dazed to his liking, he then rapes her. James Wales, 35 years old, I think unemployed, this fucking, I don't know, greasy stepfather who's at home cooking dinner while his wife's at work, yelling at the kids to stay upstairs and scaring them and shit. Downstairs, um, he's raping a 12-year-old girl. And when he's finished, 
He ties a clothesline around her neck, she's still alive, and hangs Sherry over a pipe, BTK style, in the uh, Otero family case with Josephina. Very similar to that. Although he doesn't masturbate afterwards, he's already uh, gotten off through, through raping this child. She strangles to death. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. 
And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com The girl is gone, just as her father begins looking for her. James Wales hides her body, then saunters back upstairs to finish dinner before his wife gets home. He doesn't want to get into any trouble. So that's what he says. It's basically it in the interrogation room. He gives no real explanation as to why And I hear this, I read this, and that's always so dumb to me in these situations, to hear people say, why, though? Why'd you do it? I think it's pretty clear that he did it because he wanted to, because it was a fantasy come to life. He kidnapped, beat, raped, and in sadistic fashion murdered 12-year-old Sherry Lindsay because he wanted to. Yeah, but why? Like, Like, why do it at all? Was it your childhood? Did you did you hate your mother? Is there a demon pulling your strings that we can moniker after a mental illness? I don't know what to tell you. I was attracted to the girl for some time. I fantasized about having her, and when I saw my chance, I took her. That's how I see it, in the mind of this piece of shit. That's how I see him thinking. I mean, I don't care if you hit your head falling from a tree when you're eight years old. It doesn't justify what losers like James Wales sometimes are propelled to do. And I think often um, mental health professionals give these guys ideas as to the reasons why they did it when the answer is simply that they're pieces of shit, scumbags, and they wanted to. The reason is that he's a scumbag. And like Sherry's father will later say, they should have given him the chair and allowed Sherry's father, David, to pull the switch. That's what David thinks should have happened. And I wholeheartedly agree. They'll say that's archaic, some people. I say maybe we need a little of that to help deter these types. Make them think twice before dragging a sweet little paper girl down to the cellar. You're telling me that fat fuck comes to the door and sees the girl, knows that the punishment for doing what he's fantasizing about is to be hanged in the town square while people throw fucking tomatoes and potatoes at him. He knows that. You don't think he might think twice? Her father doesn't want to know how it happened. But when he sees Sherry in the casket, in this children's casket, where he has to go and pick it out, I'll play something in a minute. It's obvious to him when he sees her that her nose had been broken. And when he eventually learns the rest, it sends him into a spiral of alcoholism. And there's so much about this is tough to imagine. The funeral part, the picking up the casket. I mean, my God. 
the the funeral director telling him, don't touch your face, I had to reconstruct it. That's what he said to him. <sighs> Here, I, I think I should, I will. I'll play the father speaking on this here. This is an elderly and ailing David Lindsay, the father of Sherry, the victim here. He passed just this last February and was buried next to his daughter. He actually passed from liver cancer, probably as a result of almost drinking himself to death after this incident. Uh, also, he's old, right? But I mean, it's funny, it's liver cancer, like how much he, he pounded the whiskey after this. Um, He buried her, him and his wife, Jean, buried her in a place he would visit nightly after her funeral, alone and drunk in the dark in the difficult weeks that followed. He would sit in the dark by her by her uh, tombstone, and uh, he couldn't show weakness to his family, he felt at the time. Again, this is like 1984, right? He's a cop. And he'd just go out there and, and talk to his daughter, his dead daughter, asking her for forgiveness asking for a sign she was okay on the other side. This is an excerpt from my current favorite crime show, Evil Lives Here, Shadows of Death. This is the second one I've covered from this. It's it's a great program or series. Season three, episode three, it's called The Paper Route. I've been on a bit of a journey with those stories lately, telling them my own way, of course. You can watch on Discovery Plus if you're interested, not sponsored. Here's the father, David. Oh, boy. The hardest thing, even harder than that, the day I was told, the hardest thing was for me to walk in that funeral parlor and pick a casket up for my daughter. We sat down, how, you know, it's big funeral arrangements and all that. The funeral director stood down. You and Jeannie go and pick out one of the caskets. The children's caskets are over here. Who should be burying her 12-year-old daughter? Who should be doing that? She should be out happy. She should be in school today. I mean, how, why would you have to bury your own daughter? Why, how could somebody do that to you? I was crying. Jeannie was crying. Funeral guy was crying. I told Jeannie, I got to get out of here. You pick out the one you want. The service occurs on the day of a massive snowstorm. More than one attendee whispers that it's as if the angels are crying. When the trial begins, the Lindsay family leaves town. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to be whispered about and stared at. They don't want the details to be rubbed in their faces. James Wales is eventually found guilty, swiftly, thankfully, of second-degree murder and first-degree rape, and is sentenced to 33 years to life, the maximum penalty. That 33 years has since passed, and now the family has been dragged for the last seven or eight years or so into this mess every couple years as Wales, predictably, attempts to be paroled at any given opportunity. He got an extra one recently because they said he was sick, and that uh, it's inhumane to keep him in, so they should probably just release him so he can get, you know, care and have his family take care of him and all that. It's not nice to keep him in jail. <laughs> and, you know, when these things happen to these guys, I think the way we should look at it is that, good, there's some additional suffering here. They should suffer. And if we can't give it to them, 
if we can't dole it out, other than just put them in jail with a bunch of fucking pieces of shit too, if we can't dole it out, then if an illness befalls them, then let that do the work. Don't release them because they're sick. He didn't release her. He didn't release Sherry, the 12-year-old girl, after he'd fucking beat her over the head and raped her. No, he hanged her and threw her body away like trash. The thing about him hanging her is that he didn't have to do it that way. He could have beat her to death, you know? He could have let her go. But the hanging, while she's alive still, obviously, I mean, I keep saying she's alive still. Obviously, she's alive if he's hanging her. Um, That, there's a conversation that happens. There's a stand up straight. There's a put your head up, lift your chin up. Shit like that. And he yanks her up manually himself. Like BTK did, he pulls down on that fucking clothesline around the neck and hangs her and feels her weight until it becomes dead weight. And he enjoys that. Sherry's mother, Jean, stays vigilant to this day, as do her siblings and cousins and nieces and nephews. They won't let the system forget who they have in there and what he took. Sherry's ghost house, a yellow-sided wooden monster where she was murdered. It was accented with a blue quite similar to the color of the blanket her killer wrapped her up in before getting back to dinner. This house, like I mentioned at the start, was bought and demolished by the Lindsays in 2020. What I didn't mention was the balloon, the sign Sherry's father, Dave, had been looking for all those years as a way to know his little girl was okay. It killed him. It killed him for decades, sitting beside his little daughter's, his dead little daughter's tombstone and not hearing a word, not hearing a whisper, not, no sign, nothing. And finally, when they're about to tear down this house, there's this balloon. Mother Jean had family and friends release balloons into the sky just before the house, this Sherry's ghost house is neighborhood kids and people called it. I mean, the house is getting sold. It's one of those murder houses. It's one of those houses where people are like, fucking something's not right here. I don't like the feeling when I'm in there. Just before the house was torn down, red balloons were released in the sky. That was Sherry's favorite color. Right up front, they released all these balloons. Jean, Mother Jean, by the way, she kept the family together this whole time. Her and husband David, Father David, had a tough time for a while but they saw through it. They had a tough time because um, Dave was drinking his face off and she had to put down all the, these photos of Sherry over time and, and he, she had to keep on pointing in his face and saying, is this what you think your daughter would want of you after this? Is this what you think she'd want? And eventually he broke down and they stayed together. They stayed together for the until he died just, just last February. Anyways... On the day where they tore down Sherry's murder house, uh, they're together, and David is making a speech of thanks to the community once the balloons went up. And as he's speaking, what he'll later call a suspicious little balloon begins making its way through the crowd behind him. It spends some time at Jeannie's seat. Jeannie got up, and she was walking around talking to people, but the seat she was sitting in 
the balloon lands on her seat. All the other balloons are way fucking up in the sky. And there's one balloon that is laying on her seat. And then it just gets up, seemingly, and starts to hover up beside the father before slowly moving away as if walked away by a child. And you could see this. You could see this on uh, the Discovery episode that I mentioned if you want to pay for Discovery. I like it for ghost adventures. I, I watch a lot of ghost shows. That's kind of my safety net after doing this stuff. I don't know what's wrong with me. And when this hardened old cop sees the video of this balloon walking away and hovering up beside him, he is so relieved to see it. For him, this was the sign he'd been looking for. And now haunting that it had arrived moments before they tore down the house. Sherry's ghost house. No more. And that'll do it. You know, there's a few details there that I missed. There were earrings that Sherry had been wearing, and I mentioned them. She had just gotten them a few weeks before she was murdered. And those earrings were found in fucking Wales's dresser. He had kept them as <laughs> trophies. They're little brass-looking earrings. Small little things. You can see them on the episode again if you want to watch it. I, I, I'm sorry I keep mentioning that. If you can't watch it, I, I'll put a link in the show notes to um, a shitty rip of it from YouTube. But the mother got them back. Jeannie. Jean. And she wears them. She wears them to this day. I think that's pretty sweet. The mother says she'll never forgive herself. As much as people try to tell her it's not her fault, she, she, you know, a lot of people let their kids go at some point and go off and do their own thing. That was the one day she let her child go and go off and do that route on her own, and this happened. Um, she said, I'll never forgive myself, and I'll never stop going up to, to uh, Sherry's room and spending time in there and feeling connected to her. I'll never stop washing her clothes and folding them and, and being a mother to her. And it'll be up to the next generation to do something about it. I will not. I will not forgive myself. I will not give up her room. We're staying in this house until I die. When um, the father, Dave, I thought they would have split up. As I got further into this uh, research, I was like, wow, they stayed together. Like, Jeannie, the mother, is so strong. And the father, too. I mean, this this cop, you got to see this cop. And the cop Dave, the dad, when she's gone, when she's missing Sherry's daughter, he's driving around forever and he keeps coming back and, and his wife keeps telling him to go out. Anyways, he passes out with exhaustion like I, I explained. And when they do finally find who the guy is, they mess, they don't message him. Yeah, like fucking text message him in 1984. They, they call him and they say, hey, we got him. We're pretty sure we fucking got him. Um, it's this, this guy, James Wales, that your wife mentioned was a creep. And she screamed, Jeannie screamed, go kill the fucker. <laughs> and he wanted to, but they already had him. There's nothing they can do, right? But go kill the fuck. Something like that. 
you just kind of wish that it happened 100 years previous or 200 years previous and the father could go and boot stomp the fucking shit out of the guy and ask him every question he wanted to and send him to hell, you know, properly. Instead of this, having this guy looming around, you know, the same way this balloon is fucking hovering beside him and he gets this release and thinking his daughter is there holding this balloon, which I believe, I do believe, personally. Um, he says it himself that, I, you know, angels exist. And um, she's released from that house when they decided to get rid of it. And she walks out of the house, she grabs that balloon and walks to her father, walks to her mother and and walks away and waits for them. That's what he believes. Um, I also believe that uh, this killer who is in prison still haunts this family by being allowed to live and literally haunts them by coming up for parole and forcing them to go fight for Sherry uh, to say, hey, he doesn't deserve to fucking leave because, again, let's remind you, this is what happened. They shouldn't have to think about this anymore. He should be gone. He should be fucking executed the father should have had his revenge by flicking the switch. <laughs> I, I love that idea. Or pulling on the fucking cord to to uh, strangle him the same way his daughter was strangled by this man. Not that they'd ever allow that, but I like the idea of flicking the switch. And let's get some resolution, some true resolution. They say, oh, we found the body. At least they have resolution. What? What are you talking about? The... Oh, oh, now I get to know that he beat her fucking face in and he raped her and then he strangled her to death before throwing away like trash. Oh, that makes me feel better knowing that. Yeah. So now what happens to the dude with the guy that did this? Oh, oh, he gets to fucking plead his case and hang around forever and get letters from fucking women and have like a weird fucking life in prison and then eventually maybe get out. Get the fuck out of here. When the father died last February, he's, his last words, his shit that he was speaking to his family was, don't ever allow that man to think that he could be free. Don't ever let him forget what he did. Don't ever let the system forget. Do not allow them to let him out, whatever it takes. Those weren't his exact last words, <laughs> mind you, uh, but something along those lines. Anyways, sorry I've been gone for a while. I don't think it's been that long, but it's just been busy here. And uh, I'm coming back full force, recording a brutal actually tonight with Kent. So everybody will hear that shortly. And um, I hope you're all well. I'm doing all right. These stories about kids, um, I'd, I'd say that they get to me and that it bothers me, which it does. But it also makes me appreciate what I have. It does make me hug my kids tighter and, and spend more time with them and um, and appreciate it more. So it's a good thing in a way. Eyes cocked, doors locked. Uh, stay paranoid. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.